This week, we're swapping four wheels for two on F1 Beyond the Grid and bringing you a special episode with motorcycling royalty. Australian legend Mick Doohan won five consecutive 500cc World Championships. And while his sporting success came on two wheels, Mick also understands the intricacies of Formula One. He's spent more than 30 years in and around the F1 paddock, and he's formed firm friendships with some of the sport's biggest names. Schumacher and I were both world champions in 94, and he was my neighbour in 94 as well. And, and then we used to bounce ideas off each other. Because we're in a different discipline, we could actually discuss the mindset of the way we went racing and qualifying and, and a whole bunch of different things. And we, we knew we weren't giving away our secrets because we weren't racing against. He had too, too many wheels. <laughs> <laughs> At times, both Doohan and Schumacher were invincible. They transcended their sports. They are the perfect inspiration for Mick's son, Jack, a multiple Formula 2 race winner with lofty ambitions of his own. It's his dream to make it all the way to the top, so the cliff is as steep as it could be at that point. You've got to be in the right spot at the right time, not getting carried away with what you hear and what other people say, and stay out of the controversy, basically. If I can help in any way, shape or form, then I'll try and do that, and that's why I'm at most of the races when he attends. Hello and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Mick Doohan is one of the most successful bike racers of all time. He dominated his sport in the way that Schumacher, Hamilton and now Verstappen have done in Formula One. But Mick had to overcome serious obstacles to fulfil his dreams. While leading the championship in 1992, he suffered a serious crash that almost led to the amputation of his right leg. The fact that he went on to win the championship just two years later and dominate the following four seasons speaks volumes about his mentality and his courage. I find out what made him a serial winner and how that attitude is applicable in Formula One. We also discuss his deep friendship with Michael Schumacher, his F1 test drive with Williams in 1998 and how the art of racing on two wheels compares to four. Mick also talks about the challenges that his son Jack faces in his quest for a seat in Formula One and what impact the Alpine Young Driver programme is having on his development. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Mick, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. Pleasure. Good to be here. You had a phenomenal bike racing career you won five consecutive world titles from 1994 to 98 and 54 races what made you such a strong competitor the easy answer is i don't really know it's a long way from australia to come to europe to race you know i've always been competitive growing up racing dirt bikes and whatever else and but more to the point come to europe it's a long way to go home and wish you would have done a little bit better or tried a little bit harder or done this a little bit differently so so just applied myself correctly did everything i needed to do to to make sure that i was going to be difficult to beat well you were renowned for having a killer instinct is that a prerequisite for all serial winners in motorsport i think in any sport or anything really um you know losing you know, they give you a second and third place, but you're still lost <laughs> at the end of the day. You know, it's, it's great, you feel good, but what have you missed out on? What, what, what's the difference between second and first? Well, there's not a great deal. So it's just working a little bit harder and thinking it through a little bit differently. So, so that's really the, uh, the ingredient that, uh, you know, the secret sources of everyone's favourite saying at the moment, but that's really what you've got to find. And when you were winning everything, and I'm thinking in particular of 1997 when you won 12 of the opening 13 races in, in MotoGP, how does that affect your confidence in what you're doing? When you don't win the 13th? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Do you feel like you can almost walk on water when it's Look, going it so does. well? And I guess that's the thing with Max, you know, he's got so much confidence at the moment and, you know, I'm not trying to put myself in his shoes or any, by any stretch of the imagination, but, but the more you win the more confident you get. And then, um, so you get away with a lot more because you just manhandle the bike um, to where you feel invincible. It has to be a massive incident or, or moment on the bike before you're really letting go of it. You're sort of fighting it to the death. And, 
And, um, you know, in, in years gone by, in the most recent past, you've seen that with Mark Marquez. And, and more to the point now, he's, he's losing a lot more, number one, because I think he's lost a bit of that confidence in what he can get away with on the bike. But, but it does build confidence. The more you win and the more you're winning by a margin, it generally, generally, even if you start at the back of the grid, you feel that you've got a chance of winning. And when you're winning repeatedly, are you in a permanent state of paranoia? Are you terrified that the success is going to end? Well, I guess you know what's going to end. <laughs> that's the thing. So, so you work harder and that's the problem. Like you put yourself under pressure each year and each week because you don't know who your competitor is going to be year in, year out or how hard they're pushing themselves or what drives them race in, race out. And uh, so until you got to the start of the season, you didn't really know. So all I knew is I had to continually work on myself and to push myself to be better than I was the, the race before or, or, or the year before. You've been embedded in the Formula One paddock for, for more than 30 years now. When you look at the guys that have achieved in Formula One what you did on bikes, do you see a lot of yourself in them? And I'm thinking of Michael Schumacher, Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen today. Look, I, I, I don't know. The discipline's different. And I think um, but the application, the way you go racing is pretty similar. How you prepare yourself is... You know, at the end of the day, the, the sports, it's all about the mind games and it's not so much playing games with other people, but within yourself, how you apply yourself, how confident you are, how the building the team around you, you know, directing engineers with what you want. So so I, I think there's a lot of similarities there. And, and um, you know, you mentioned Schumacher. Schumacher and I were both world champions in 94 and he was my neighbour in 94 as well. And, and then we used to bounce ideas off each other. Because we're in a different discipline, we could actually discuss the mindset of the way we went racing and qualifying and, and a whole bunch of different things. And we, we knew we weren't giving away our secrets because we weren't racing against. He had too, too many wheels. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mick, let's talk about four wheels and you, because I don't know how many people listening will know this, but back in 1998, you were winning the world championship on two wheels but you also tested for Williams at Barcelona in the FW20 how was that experience yeah, interesting <laughs> um, it wasn't really a test like uh, that was the main thing it was uh, Tom Mackinnon uh, world rally champion um, Jacques Villeneuve and myself were all sponsored by the same tobacco company at that point in time different branding, um, although I had the same as um, a personal sponsor, the same as, as Jack. But it was just, a, you know, share each other's vehicles essentially, but um, Frank Williams decided not to let uh, Jack on the bike after he'd learned a Carlos Sainz going straight ahead. <laughs> he would break a little bit too late on the bike thinking he was in a car and went straight off in turn one at Barcelona. But um, anyway, so we went out and I spun the car on the first, uh, the first lap out because <laughs> it was the first... Uh, car I'd been in that had similar sort of power to what the bike was you know so everything else you could just jump on the gas and the thing would slowly get away well the F1 was caught me out a little bit so you know I apologize for that I spun and just clipped the inside wall <laughs> I think on turn four or something like that anyway in Barcelona could have been five the right hand or whatever that is and um did that infuriate you, the it competitor did. in you? It, it did, to be honest, because it's like, you know, I thought I was good getting out of the, out of the box, you know, because first time getting out with a hand clutch and all this type of thing. So, so that was all good. Um, you know, to make me feel better, and I'm sure it was only that, uh, Jacques told me he spun twice on his first lap out in a, in a Formula One car. And, and Tommy, after me, made it one, one turn further than me before spinning. But, uh, but look, that was all about a promotion. So it was about half a dozen laps, 10 laps perhaps. And then it was about a three-hour PR media um, scrum. So um, Ron Dennis, in fact, used to ask me all the time to come and test the McLaren, but I wasn't really, I wasn't interested. So, um, you know, my downtime was all about having some downtime because back in those days, there used to be a lot more testing. So you didn't really, even though there was only 15, 16 rounds, there was always, there was never much downtime. So the last thing I wanted to do was go and jump in a car just for some publicity, mainly for them. And then I was never going to race cars anyway. So, uh, so back to that Williams day, it was a great experience, but I had no intention of ever wanting to be a, uh, a car racer. And I was going for a test after that. So 
once I'd spun the car, my thoughts were, again, as you say, I was leading the World Championship, was about going to the test to continue to try and win that World Championship rather than to see how quick I could go in a Formula One car. What about the performance of the F1 car? That was the first year of of, um, groove tyres, and I think the sport was still getting used to that idea. But what impressed you the most? It was the only thing that was quick and I, how quick it accelerated and how quick it got me from point A to point B, similar to the bike. The only difference in sensation was a bike, you're over the top of it, you're hanging onto it, you know, you're digging your, the soles of your feet into the footrests and, and you're hanging onto the handlebars on the straight line, whereas this thing's just pushing you and it just continually pushed you from the back. But on the bike in Barcelona, top speed's a little bit quicker than the F1 car, but we break at the 200 metre point. It was all good until I got to the 200 metre point. As soon as I went past the 200 metre point, my brain is telling me to brake. So I jump on the brake and then have to accelerate again before I got to the turn. <laughs> but uh, but that, was the, um, that was what I noticed is just how quick the point-to-point speed of the, of the car and, and then getting, as I say, it was such a short test to get my head around the downforce. Did you find it very restrictive? You know, the belts are tight, whereas, as you've said, you are, you're hanging on to a bike. That didn't concern me, honestly, too much at all. It was just um, a different sensation completely. So, um, you know, as a bike guy, I think you've seen Valentino and a few of the other guys who have transitioned. It gives you a false sense of security as a bike guy. You haven't got that sort of safety harness on a bike and, and, or anything else. So, Interesting that you mentioned Valentino Rossi there because there was a period of about five years in the early noughties where... He looked pretty serious about Formula One. I remember him testing in 2006 at Valencia alongside Schumacher. And I think he was close. He was 0.7, I think, off Michael. What did you make of that? And do you think Valentino was serious about Formula One? Have you spoken to him about it? Yeah, I, I, you know, Valentino, amazingly talented guy, you know, very smart um, intellectually and... um, as you say, whether it be half a second, whether it be two tenths, whether it be whatever the time difference is, you know, Valentino is smart. He knows that after an hour and a half at two tenths off the pace at your best lap, <laughs> you're going to be a fair way behind, you know, and that takes the years of doing karting, doing racing to find those extra, whether it be a second, whether it be half a second, those last few tenths take that time. And um, I think Valentino was smart enough to stay in his lane and and keep just staying on two wheels. For most of us, learning a second language in school wasn't exactly a high point in our academic careers. The closest I got to a second language was French, and I even tried speaking to F1 driver Olivier Panis in French when I first met him in the 90s. The conversation didn't go well. Now, however, thanks to Babbel, There's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. Whether you'll be travelling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. Babbel makes learning a language quick and easy because it focuses on natural conversation. Their 15-minute lessons are designed to be the most efficient and effective way to learn a new language. Babbel lessons are created by more than 150 language experts, meaning real people, so you learn how to have real-world conversations. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian and German. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos or even join live classes with a language teacher. Right now, Babbel is offering our listeners three months free with a purchase of a three-month subscription with the promo code BEYOND. Go to babble.com forward slash podcast 23 and use the promo code BEYOND for an extra three months free. That's babble, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash podcast 23, promo code BEYOND. Babble, language learning that works. Are the disciplines of bike racing and Formula One as different as they look, is it rugby and football or are there more similarities than look at face value? I, I, you probably put it right there. I think it's similar to football and rugby. You know, there, there's a lot of similarities there, but it's just a different discipline. And, um, you know, the lines are different. The braking style is different on a bike in comparison to a car. But the mindset's the same. What you want to achieve, how you go about achieving it. 
what you're thinking about on the track. Obviously, you've got a wider machine to pass, but, I mean, you're still calculating exactly what's going on. Had you started karting at the age of four, do you think in terms of the feel and the discipline you have, you could have made it as a race car driver and equally had Lewis Hamilton started bike racing at an early age, could he have made it? Well, like that's the... the I mean, it's a slightly outrageous <laughs> question. <laughs> but, it's, yeah. but I'm could, interested to It could be to applied to a bunch of different things. But, um, but look, there's plenty of bike guys, including Lewis, who have jumped on the bike and, and is reasonably quick. And, um, and likewise, Michael Schumacher was the same thing. I, I went on the track with him a couple of times and uh, and he was quick but he still had the same mindset of driving a car as he did when he was riding a bike so he had to adapt that so you know which you what don't do, you do it for that? well just with the braking you know like everything was about the last minute brake in a straight line and then tip it in and, and not try and balance the bike because you know the cars all set a little bit different so again yes I think he or Lewis probably had they just pushed They'd be a top racer, the same as Damon Hill, in fact. Like, he wanted to go racing, I'm not sure, with bikes. I'm not sure what happened there in the end. But the feel is is similar. And as I say, the bike, there's not too many car guys who sort of can transition into into the bike side of things, whereas there have been a few bike guys who have been able to transition the other way. I mean, Johnny Chicotto, you know, is one, and, you know, a few other guys who have moved on. And not at this level, well... I think Surtees did a pretty good job. Well, he won. That's a really good example, right? He won world titles on two wheels right. and four. Describe the scale of John Surtees' achievement. Uh, look, you know, one, he was an amazing chap, but um, the popularity of bikes were, were pretty strong. And back in those days as well, the bike, the bikes were, you know, it was an everyday... A lot more people had bikes to just commute around on, so the popularity was huge. And... Uh, so for you know, there was a few of the guys who tried to do it, but um, but Surtees managed to do it on both. Um, I'm not sure who he was with in the end with Envy Augusta, I think, in, in on bikes, and then he went Ferrari, was it on uh, in, in F1? But an amazing feat, and uh, nobody's done it to date. But I, I'm dumbing it down a little bit by saying that things probably are different today than they were back then. But because I'm not there, who knows? You know, it may have just been as uh, difficult. And in 1960, Surtees was flip-flopping between Formula One and bikes. He won the 500cc world title that year, but he also finished second in the British Grand Prix in Formula One. How hard is it to flip-flop between the two? I I think today that's just not possible. Um, One, I don't think regulations allow, but two, it's just a lot more intensity around both sports today, I think. Not devaluing anything from what what they were back then, but... But you're involved with the paddock here and the the paddock in the, the MotoGP is, isn't far removed from here either. So there's a lot of demand on, on, the, on the rider driver's time at both of those. So, so to, to switch mindset and to switch just between the two would be, be near impossible, I would have thought. And the same as, you know, the likes of Agostini. I'm not sure whether Agostini drove cars or not or did anything, but, you know, he was, he was riding the 500, then the 350 and the 250 all in the same day and winning all all races so you know there's it's just unheard of these days can we talk a little bit more about schumacher now as you say you got to know him in the 90s when he was at benetton now he was pretty intense when he was here at the racetrack laser focused did you ever see the relaxed side of michael schumacher yeah absolutely and and like really nice guy and 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 fairly fairly chilled you know when you'd see him away I'd see him here at the circuit as well at the races and you knew when to stay away from him but I mean I, I don't mind that in somebody you know he's here I'm, I'm coming to his office and, and likewise if he's coming to mine so I'm not there to disrupt him while he's in the middle of a deal sort of thing you know and uh, so I understand that and that's what made him as who he was but no I got to know him well I knew him well we understood each other a little bit but uh, but likewise I I probably wasn't that intense but I wasn't that user friendly in the paddock <laughs> sometimes either <laughs> what floated his boat away from racing I mean you got him into bikes but was there anything else that he was particularly interested in he, that you he, saw he was just action jackson action you know well, whatever you call it one of those figurines you know <laughs> so he was into everything so but he loved his you know skydiving I think that's well known and uh, scuba diving and bikes and football and whatever else so he never he never sat around and and wondered about life and and I think that was great he was always uh, on the go doing something 
But as I say, away from the track, we wouldn't... And the same today, I'm sure. We don't go away and start talking about, you know, if buts and maybes and what's happening on the racetrack. There might be a couple of moments of that, but you're talking about other hobbies, a bit of a laugh on this and a laugh on that, and what are we up to and where are we going and, and this type of thing. So just a normal friendship, to be honest. You say it was just a, a, a normal friendship, but is it true that Mick Schumacher is called Mick after your uh, good I self? believe so. <laughs> <laughs> so but, I mean, you know, he's probably uh, disappointed he's not called Michael, but <laughs> but no, that's, uh, that, that's, that's very cool. But I think also it helps differentiate. He's still Michael, I guess, but Mick, so one's Mick, one's Michael, so... You know, I didn't. I intentionally didn't do that to Jack because you know I had a father and my my brother and my grandfather. They're all my, well, they're all named Colin. You know, so I didn't want to, uh, you know, do a junior type of thing. So the Australian driver looks up and sees the checkered flag first. Jack Doohan wins again in Belgium. He punches the air with delight. Eleventh on the grid to first at the flag, and he will feel that that is some of the luck paid back for the start of the year. His dad is delighted. You mentioned your son, Jack. Let's talk about him now because, well, both him and Mick Schumacher are trying to muscle their way, in Mick's case, back onto the grid, in Jack's case, trying to get onto the F1 grid for the first time. You're, I'm sure very involved in in Jack's career but tell us how hard it is for a young guy who's winning in Formula 2 to make that last step. The the cliff is is as steep as it could be at that point you know at least you've got some some footholds to climb to get to 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 F1 but then you've only got 20 seats and 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 at any given point in time there may be one or two seats available so you know and then how fluid the paddock moves and then uh, the commercial aspect of it so you've got to be in the right spot at the right time with the right deal in place so so it's forever moving so so that's um you know it's it's his dream to make it all the way to the top so if I can help in any way shape or form then I'll try and do that and that's why I'm at most of the races when he attends what's the biggest lesson you learned in your career that can help Jack I, I think just not getting caught up in the bullshit, to be honest, and, um, and 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 I mean that by not getting carried away with what you hear and what um, what other people say, and so just stay, let's say it again, stay in your lane, focus, do the best job you can, and stay out of the controversy. Basically, you know, that's at the end of the day, you're a driver, and never forget that. He's part of the Alpine Academy, and I remember a year ago there was quite a lot of talk of him maybe getting the seat that Alonso was vacating. Can you give us your thoughts on the Alpine Academy, but also these junior academies in general, in terms of what do they do for a young driver? Um, Alpine has been a great, um, a great direction to put Jack in or on. From the outset, from day one, it's about making him a better driver and, and the others in the academy just preparing them as if they ever get the opportunity to be an F1 one driver, that they're prepared for that position. And I think that's what I can see with Alpine. They're actually doing a great job. And uh, last year there was a, with Alonso unexpectedly leaving and then um, Oscar, Oscar Piastri sort of jumping ship to, uh, to, to McLaren, there was a slight opportunity, but uh, unfortunately... Um, for Jack, <laughs> the experience decided on taking a, on a, a, an experienced driver there. So, but we've seen in the past that taking some risks sometimes uh, can reward the, the team. And, and what's the biggest thing that Jack has got out of the academy? Is, is it driving the two-year-old car? I think beyond that, I think, yes, that's been a plus. I think, um, you know, getting the mileage up in that, he's, he's got a, a number of you know thousands of kilometers now under his belt in that but working with the engineers when the debriefs the pre-briefs um uh working with uh, the engineers during the f1 events so he's got a full understanding of what it takes to be a driver what it takes what they're doing behind the scenes what um pierre and and uh, esteban are up to so it's like it's it's a junior school. He's going and actually getting the education and understanding what what he needs and how he can better himself to go forward. But Mick, what do you do when 
there's no space in Formula One. Both Ocon and Gasly have contracts for 2024. Jack has proven himself in Formula Two. So what do you do next? You know, other than him continually pushing himself to better himself and, and to do what he can in the F2 car, and also when he's when he's working with the F1 team and, and driving the, the, the 21 car, is to make sure that uh, he's in the right position, best spot, to fill a seat if and when one does become available because, you know, he's, he's now in that position. So you'd hope, OK, even if there's not one in 24, perhaps there'll be an, uh, an option for 25 because otherwise they need to start to prepare another young driver <laughs> to come through to put in that position. So, you know, it's expensive, the investment that they're already putting into Jack to prepare him for Formula One, you would hope that that's not uh, all just for the sake of it and, uh, and not actually being put to good use, that we're going to reap the rewards of that investment that we're actually sort of putting in the kid. While we're on the topic generally of contracts, there's one aspect of your own career that I find fascinating, which is that you signed one-year deals, whereas it seems to me in F1 at the minute, everyone's after the longer-term deal. First... Why only one year for you? Well, one, it, when I was starting to do that, I was in a strong position. And then two, the other manufacturers weren't signing long-term contracts, so it enabled me to, to uh, leverage my position every year. So um, oh, I was interested. That, is, that was the reason. <laughs> pretty, pretty much You so. were the man. If you want me, That's you can right. have me for a year and we'll renegotiate. That's right. It. And I'm sure the same in this paddock. You couldn't go around sort of making up fictitious numbers and, and deals and whatever you do, and everyone talks. But, I mean, it still sort of moved the goalposts every year of where we needed to be. And, you know, unfortunately, um, in one of the years, um, it, it didn't work out so well, but it still didn't. I didn't go backwards, but, I mean, I was just everyone trying to fill my shoes. That was all when I was injured. So, But it certainly put me in a strong position to to negotiate and, and drag it out throughout the course of uh, course of the year. And, you know, it, it would have come down, it wouldn't always just come down to the monetary side of it, but it'd be, you know, what, what, what else are you going to, what's the development team look like? What's the engineering team look like? Well, what's, so it had to, it was a whole, it was a whole package. It wasn't just, you know, give me another dollar and I'm happy to sign for you guys. And, uh, you know, Honda would always end up coming to the party, you know, and it wasn't really until, they ended up signing Valentino Rossi. The Yamaha decided to make full commitment and and I was general manager of Honda Racing at that point in time because I'd signed Valentino to be my teammate in 2000 and then Honda took me out of, it's uh, digressing a bit here, but took me out of that contract when they knew I was going to be competing against them but not riding because I, I ended up retiring through injury. But uh, I had told them they better sign up all the engineers and, and mechanics because I believe he's going and Honda said to me we know racing so that was the start of me leaving that position and uh, because I was doing exactly the same thing every if I was going somewhere all my guys were going with me and, and back to Formula One Schumacher took when he moved took a bunch of his people away with him and, and that's the, the, the best way to well, do things. You know what works for you so therefore you stick with it. Lewis has had Pete Bonington as his race engineer for years. Yeah and, and it's pretty it's a pretty simple. Jerry I think Burgess in your case. In that's Vikings, right yeah. and then and then uh, Valentino inherited all my old team but both in MotoGP and I'm sure here now it's a little bit harder to sort of just take your team and go to the next door's uh, garage so but, uh, but back in those days, that was, that was the whole thing. So it was just sort of changing the manufacturer, but not the team, essentially. I can see why the one-year contract worked for you. You were at the top of your game. You were winning. You were calling the shots. For someone like Jack, who is trying to get into Formula One, is the opposite true? Are you trying to get a long-term deal with an F1 well, team? you know, even for myself, the first two-year deal, well, the first contract, I should say, was a, was a multi-year deal. And... and as a young driver, you'd certainly want a multi-year contract. And I think even now the teams also, they want to sort of know that their investment, they're going to get a couple of years out of their driver. And the same if you are the sponsor, you probably want to know if you're throwing your money towards somebody like Lewis or Max or, or um, uh, any other driver on the grid that you want to know a little bit of um, consistency there. With the busy second half of the Formula One season now in full swing, 
I'm looking for wholesome, convenient meals for jam-packed days, like when I'm travelling to races, hosting the driver's press conferences, or recording these Formula One podcasts. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle. Because with Factor, you can skip the extra trip to the grocery store and the chopping and the prepping and the cleaning up as well, while still getting the flavour and the nutritional quality you need. And you can choose from more than 34 weekly flavour-packed, fresh, never-frozen meals that are ready in two minutes. Treat yourself to upscale meals with premium ingredients like broccolini, leeks, truffle butter and asparagus, and I highly recommend all of those. They're very delicious. And this September, get Factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. Simply choose your meals and enjoy fresh, flavour-packed meals delivered to your door, ready in just two minutes, no prep, no mess. Head to factormeals.com slash BTG50 and use the code BTG50 to get 50% off. That's code BTG50 at factormeals.com slash BTG50 to get 50% off. And from a safety point of view, can we come on to that now? Are you pleased that Jack is racing cars and not bikes? I think as a parent, for sure. Um, but that was his own doing as well. Like he likes surfing, rugby, and his friends were karting. So, and uh, again, back to the Schumachers. Schumachers helped with some karts for both his sister and, and Jack when, when they were young in Australia. Got a go kart track at home. So, you know, for the bigger kids, that was mainly. <laughs> so he grew up around the karting, so he headed off in that way. But, but yes, it's easier to watch him racing, but um, it's still, as a parent, you're worried about what you can't control. And, uh, you know, I, I feel he can drive, but you just don't know what else is, is, uh, is going to happen. And, and Mick, when you were riding, what was your attitude to danger? You know, I, I was... Um, I was always scared to hurt myself. Like, I think you need to have a fair amount of a healthy dose of fear. Otherwise, you're going to be a danger to yourself and, and everybody else around you. So, you know, people say you're fearless. I don't believe that's the case. I, you, you need to prepare yourself and, and calculate exactly what you're doing. And I think preparation is the key to success. You know, how can you, you're working with your engineers, how you can prepare yourself both mentally, physically, and with the team to, to minimize the risk and so um, how did you justify the risk in your mind I, I think the more you do it it doesn't seem so risky you know it's probably like a fighter pilot as well you know you only crash of an aircraft once generally unless you can <laughs> eject but uh, you know with with the cars bikes or whatever it's again minimizes the risk and, and justifying and just better understanding so the better you understand it so the more risk you can take and the more confidence you get, the more risk you take because you feel you're in control of it. So, you know, you, it's inevitable that you're going to crash. You know, nobody gets away with not crashing, but you sort of try and manage that as best as you can, both from a mental standpoint and with preparation. And, um, but unfortunately, accidents happen, and, and that's the unknown within motorsport, but in life. You had some horrendous crashes and none more so than at Assen in 1992. What happened there? That, um, well, I, essentially I broke my own leg, really. Um, and uh, you look at me funny because it's, uh, they just red flagged the session as I was breaking in a, a, a set of um, uh, pistons because they were two strokes. So we'd never start a race with more than about 125 kilometres on the pistons. So I was just breaking a set in to leave that and then I was going for a flying lap and just as I went over the start finish line they red flagged it because somebody had dropped some fluid. I went into turn one which was about 160 odd kilometres an hour and um, the bike just snapped sideways, flicked me over and, and I'm sliding up the road but the bike's on top of me. Normally you'd slide off the track even if it was on top of you and then you know, the grass or the gravel, you'd separate. Well, I'm going up the road and it's starting to get a bit warm, the weight of the bike on me, not the heat of the bike, but the friction. So I tried to spin out from underneath it. Everything spun except for my leg, of course. So then when I went to stand up, I could feel my, my, 
the bones grind and I went, you know, sat back down straight away and put the hand up to ask for a bit of assistance. But, you know, more to the point, I was leading the world championship and straight away I was like, shit, because I'd almost won the year before. And then you were 60 odd points ahead yeah, at that point. Yeah, well, Rainey had gone home. My chap, the, the guy I was racing with in the championship, and he beat me by a few points the year before on a count back. So that was a more disappointment. But then I was in a rush to get going and being two weekends off, and then there was Hungary and Budapest. So two weekends off, I thought, well, if I just put some metal in there, bolt the leg back together, I can be up and running. I won't be strong, but I can, you know, try and manage a few points and keep running and uh, the Italian doctor, Dr. Costa, who ended up saving my leg, he said, look, you know, the best thing to do is um, do nothing and you'll be back in six weeks or so in Brazil. We just put it in a plaster cast, it's nothing to... No metal was his No advice. metal, yeah, just put it in a plaster cast. Okay, you're gonna miss some races, you know, and, and whatever, but then you'll be strong. You might be able to challenge for the championship. And uh, so that wasn't something I wanted to hear. So I said to the doctors, there and then the Dutch doctors um, you know who's the best guy here to you know bolt a leg back together and he basically and I remember that I thought it was odd even then but he said we all went to the same university here we all learnt the same skills and so well, kind of again not really what I wanted to hear but okay let's go and that was at the start of the end he basically messed up and and what's called a compartment syndrome set in and then uh, my leg got necrotic they were going to amputate the leg thankfully Costa took me back to uh, to Italy saved the leg ended up sewing the leg together so to my sewing left your my left two leg yeah legs to my right together. leg why uh, for blood supply and then also for skin to because uh, again where it had gone necrotic or gangrene for the you know easier term that people would probably understand they dug that out with a spoon, basically like a teaspoon, and then all of a sudden I can see this hardware, I can see my bone, I can see the tendon, and I'm thinking, well, this doesn't look like the year's going to end well. <laughs> and um, so then the, the option was to sit around for a long while anyway and then get a free flap from my other backside or back or something and come back in a year or so's time. Now, that wasn't an option. So bolting the legs together, that wasn't an option, which I've done... It's a fairly barbaric way, so it was nobody who was really keen to do it except for myself. <laughs> and but normally they'd they'd pin your legs together. Well, that wasn't an option either because now I've got Swiss cheese for legs. And um, so we ended up using Scotch cast, so a fiberglass path plaster cast, and and sewed the legs together. Took the skin from this side you've seen them before and put it over here, and then. Uh, and here it was just I wasn't able to close it back up because it was still too uh, too too swollen. And took some cheese graters and took them from here and slapped it on the back to get me going. Slapped it on the back of the legs, and I was back in Brazil. <laughs> and uh, but I didn't score any points. So Wayne Rainey beat me by a few points in '92 as well. Mick, it's an extraordinary story, and just you were lifting up your trouser leg then, showing me where you know they'd taken the the skin from your thigh and put it on down at the, the front of your right leg. What are you thinking about when you're lying in hospital? Well, back to some of the earlier conversations that we had, you know, you're probably not thinking, you know, because you're fully immersed into, into what you're doing. There's nothing else matters, and I think that's the mindset of a racer. Did you ever question whether you wanted to continue racing? Absolutely, and especially after the end of 92, one, I didn't have a firm contract for, for 94, so I couldn't really sit around and, and not ride. But it was just how long it took me because it took until the beginning of 94 before I was healed from that accident. So I rode with 93 with a, with a leg that was, what was a malunion and it was uh, oozing pus out of a, out of a, a, a hole in, in my leg. But I had to continue. Were you in constant pain? It was in reasonable pain, sorry, but I mean, it's um, still at that point in time, it was, you know, is this worth it? You know, what the hell am I doing? But I still felt I had unfinished business and I could, I won a race with, with my leg like that. You know, I ended up removing, well, I couldn't use the rear uh, brake any longer because my ankle is functionally fused. I adapted the rear brake onto my thumb and I won a race with the leg which wasn't healed and it was actually had a 20 degree angulation in it. And you could actually grab the ankle and grab the knee and flex the leg. 
and I could win, I went, I won a race, I should say, and and multiple podiums that year with the leg like that. So I knew if I got strong enough, I could perhaps win. I'm not going to be able to ride as freely as I did previously, but that was the only thing that kept me going. But the back of my mind is saying, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, but like I was saying, the the you know Max Lewis. All these guys on the grid should be fully immersed in what they're doing. Nothing else, no, everything else is secondary. You know, life, real life, which you don't experience until you get out of that, that bubble. And then you go, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> you know? but, um, but, you know, life is long. And, and uh, you know, I did 10 seasons, 89 through to 99. And, you know, it's now 2024, so I'm 15 years down, <laughs> sorry, 25 years down the path. And but I mean, at that point in time, nothing else matters. Were you as good after that crash at Assen in '92 as you were before? I'm sure it's the same with these guys, but I think mentally, yes. You, but physically, no. I had to move around. Like my ankle didn't move, so I used to sort of rotate a lot on my ankle, especially with the rear brake and and uh, and modulating the bike basically from and the balance because that's the only way you sort of keep the keep the weight transfer on the bike is. The rear brake. A lot of guys didn't believe that at the time, and then until then they thought that I was cheating with the rear brake. <laughs> but I why? Mean, what, well, on what because I, I could now use the rear brake, you know. But a lot of the guys today still use a handbrake. Um, move, are are there parallels between what you went through and Robert Kubica after his rally crash in 2011? Look, everything's different, to be honest. So again, I don't know Robert uh, well enough. A great guy, very extremely talented, but. You know, probably the arm, hand is probably in in what he's doing in the car. Probably, and uh, you know, the leg is extremely important because you, you steer the bike through your midsection and, and your legs. So the, all I was missing out in was the braking and moving because when I'm moving, I'm I'm having to use a lot more. But I'm sure mentally for him, it was believing that he's still because he's, he's still bloody damn quick with, with the challenges that he faces in the car. So, so uh, you know, that was very sad. Want to win exclusive Formula One experiences and money can't buy prizes just by answering a few questions about Formula One? With Santander Lap Zero, you can be in with a chance of experiencing a Grand Prix like a VIP or getting your hands on signed F1 merchandise. And all you have to do to win is prove your knowledge by answering quiz questions on Formula One and sustainability. Here's how you play. First, go to SantanderLapZero.com or search Santander Lap Zero. Then after a simple sign up, you'll be ready to start answering questions. You'll be trying to get as many correct answers as you can against the clock. The more quizzes you do, the more answers you get right. And the faster you answer, the higher you'll be on the global leaderboard. A VIP Formula One experience, signed F1 merchandise and other great prizes are up for grabs. So prove your F1 knowledge and you could be a winner. You must be 18 or over to play and geographic restrictions apply. For more information, competition rules, full terms and conditions and to enter, go to SantanderLapZero.com. That's SantanderLapZero.com or search Santander Lap Zero. Do you think racing drivers, bike riders, are you all thrill seekers, fundamentally? Well, we, we don't think so, but we must be, you know. So, How well, have we, you replaced the adrenaline rush? Thankfully, I, I, I haven't, but, um, you know, aviation's a big part of my life. I'm a part owner of a large uh, trading company called Jetcraft and operational company in Australia, another name, and, and, and I fly helicopters and I fly. So, so I become Mick the pilot, which almost takes me away from, you know, whereas I was Mick the bike rider, now I'm Mick the pilot. And you think, but I mean, I'm not taking risks at all. <laughs> and, then, and then with that, the business side of things. So for business is an is, is a exciting time for me. And I've, I've changed that focus from sitting on a bike to sitting in an office and, and working uh, what I do. Were the lessons you learned in racing applicable? How have they helped you in the business world? The risk-taking, the so, quick again, decision cal process? Cal calculated risk, you know, so preparing yourself and, uh, and understanding what you're doing. I think that's, you're always going to mess up 
So you don't win every every deal, you don't win every race, and you're going to make mistakes, like I said. So I think as long as you're prepared for that, but as long as you're prepared, I think, and, and that's what sport at any level, and that's why I think sport's so good for kids regardless, because punctuality, discipline, you know, commitment, you know, so all that applies no matter what, what discipline you're doing. Well, Mick, it has been absolutely brilliant to catch up with you. As you've said already, you're now a hugely successful businessman, planes. I'm thinking of Thierry Bootson when I think of buying and selling planes. He was on, uh, we had him on the pod last year. But how much are you enjoying just being back, you know, in the paddock, still living the racing life as well as everything else you've got going on? Well, we, we, I must just say on Thierry, we, we, uh, we work well with uh, Thierry's mob. We, we supply them with some aircraft and likewise sometimes, but uh, it's a, he's more of a localised Monaco uh, a broker. We're global, but um, equally they're a great uh, great bunch of guys he has working for him. But um, but enjoying being back here, it's just, well, I grew up sort of racing dirt bikes and, and, then, and then road racing and then... Uh, and then go-karting with my son and then uh, so it's just it's just part of my life and motorsport I, I sort of love it and um, still watch pretty much every sort of motorsport I can get my get my eyes on to. Australia seems to be in a pretty good place in Formula One as well we've obviously we've discussed Jack and hopefully he'll get through but you've got Oscar Piastri doing the business at McLaren as well. Look I think it's uh, you know from Jack Brabham back in the day, you know, Alan Jones and then, um, then Mark Webber and, you know, Oscar's the man of the moment and he's doing a great job. And, um, you know, thankfully the Victorian government support both MotoGP and Formula One and um, we've got the event down there for a number of years to come. But, but as just, we had over 440,000 people at the event in, in Melbourne earlier in the year. So motorsport in general is well supported, you know, the go-karting in Australia, the, the, the national championship, it has over 400 entrants, over nine classes, you know, so uh, it's a fair way from, from the rest of the world, but motorsport for some reason is very much enjoyed down in Australia. And I was fascinated, let's go back to where we started in that Australia, as you say, is a long way away. So for all the guys and girls that make the commitment to come to Europe, the stakes are high, you've got to make it work. That's right, it's, nothing's cheap, motorsport isn't cheap and you're living away from home. You're not away for a weekend or a week, you know, or three weeks, you know, when you guys complain about a few flyaways. As an Australian or a Kiwi, you're away, you know. You, you might go back, for instance, my son, he, he, I think, spent six weeks in Australia sort of in the past 12 months. You know, that's a, that's a pretty big commitment. And it's not just for my son, it's for other other parents kids and 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 daughters and and boys and girls so it's a it's a big commitment but you are living in the south of france so the family is also in europe in your case right that's right so we're a little bit different but um but then equally once it gets a bit cold i go back to australia (laughs) (laughs) all right uh mick i want one final line from you if i may which is just the job that max verstappen is doing at the minute i mean I guess you've known Max all his life because you know Jos. Just he's only 25. Can he still get better from where he is now? Mentally, without a doubt, and and mentally that he'll continually learn to be a race car driver. And I'm sure Lewis and and where you see Alonso. So, but but Max, it's just phenomenal what he's doing in that car. You know, you can only you can only really compare him to his teammate. But Max can come from the back of the grid to the front and quite quickly <laughs> so he's at the top of his game and you know you can probably remember being 25 <laughs> so, sort of but i mean that 25 to 32 area i think you're in your best sort of space anyway both as a as a human being and you continually absorb things a lot easier, easier to understand so for me from now and for his next five years if he wants to stay here and, and dominate i think he's got that all ahead of him crikey well we can look forward to that mick thank you so much for your time pleasure I loved this chat with Mick. He's a motorsport legend and someone who knows what it takes to win at the highest echelon. He's a tough nut and it's no surprise that he was friends with Michael Schumacher. Winning is a state of mind. Mick had what it takes, Schumi had it, and the likes of Lewis, Max and others have it today. Mick, many thanks for your time. I learned a lot and I look forward to seeing you at a racetrack again soon. 
Now, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Mick. The description of his injuries left me open-mouthed. I hope you learnt a lot about winning as well. And please send me your thoughts on everything that you've just heard via all the usual means. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in after last week's show with Mercedes Young Driver Chief Gwen LeGrew. It was fascinating to hear about how the team set about trying to find the next F1 superstar, wasn't it? Let's start with this from Philip Pegler. I absolutely loved your conversation with Gwen LeGrew, an inspiring chat revealing how a man with an incredible passion for the sport found a way to channel that passion and truly give back by nurturing and guiding talent in the perfect way. I agree with all of that, Philip. Thanks for the message. Gwen is the perfect man for the job because he understands the sport so well. Anyone on the Mercedes Young Driver programme is lucky to have him because they know that they'll be well looked after. And what about this from KJS? Another great podcast, Tom. Two very important ingredients for success stand out for me when 99.9% of racing drivers are discussing their formative years. One, supportive parents to nurture, support and encourage them. And two, you can't coach in what God left out. (laughs) What a great way of putting it. Uh, Thanks for the message, KJS. And even with these thorough Young Driver programmes, you do still need the raw ingredients in order to succeed. And what about this from Melo Sinfila? I love you so much, Gwen. Thanks to you, Esteban is doing what he loves. He certainly is. That's Esteban Ocon, of course. And Esteban's story is an incredible one. And he'll openly tell you that without Gwen, he wouldn't have made it to Formula One. What a vote of confidence that is for Gwen LeGroux. Look, we'll leave it there for messages, but thank you to everyone who got in touch because we do love reading what you have to say. Well, that's it for this episode. I'll, of course, be back next week with a true legend of Formula One. And remember to have a listen to our other podcasts, F1 Nation and F1 Explains. There was certainly a lot to discuss after that thrilling Singapore Grand Prix on Sunday, and all that discussion is on F1 Nation. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.